Welcome to the Weight Loss for Women podcast, a place where we share everything you need to know about restoring your metabolism so you can eat more, train less, and lose weight in a healthy and sustainable way. I'm Kitty Bloomfield, co-founder of New Strength and Saturated, creator of pro-metabolic food supplements and seriously saturated skincare. And today I have our friend Keith Littlewood, or you know, he's known as Tomo uh, on Instagram, back on the podcast. We've done heaps of podcasts uh, with with Tomo, so go back and listen to those ones. Welcome back. Good to see you, Kissy. <laughs> We're having How the fuck are you? I'm fucking great. Thanks very much. He likes to swear as well. I love swearing. My wife doesn't yeah. like me swearing, but I just say, I don't really trust anyone who's not prepared to swear. Yeah. So if you don't like swearing, maybe don't listen to this podcast. Um, so Keith, you've, he's got his master's in endocrinology and you're currently doing your PhD, aren't you? Yeah. The, the, the struggle is, the struggle is real. Uh, <laughs> How's it going? Uh, With the, well, you got well, three kids? Three kids. Hey. Three kids. One yeah. doesn't talk to me at the moment. She's at university. Um, so that's, that's slightly easy to manage. The other two are kind of just fighting all the time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's like the struggle is real because trying to do it part time, which is over six years, mm-hmm. I'm like, I have two to three days a week and the rest is my, my working week. So it's just a struggle trying to juggle everything around, you know, um, it's, uh, it's a challenge. All my other PhD colleagues are half my age and full time doing it full time. So it's like, yeah, I wish I was doing it full time because it's like, Every Monday you go into the lab and it's like, you feel like you've just come off summer holiday. It's like, what do I do? That's so funny. Yeah, I know. I don't know how you do it, eh? With kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be long six years. Yeah, well, it's nearly the first year's nearly gone, so it's gone quite quickly. There you go. One six of a down. And then can we call you Doctor Tomo Littlewood after that? If I can defend my thesis and the research looks good, well, that's a long way off yet. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be fine. We'll be calling you Dr. Tomo in no time. Ah, uh, so today I, I think Tolo, Tolo will be fine. <laughs> I wanted to get Dr. Tobo back on the podcast just to talk about um, some co- common blood tests that uh, may, I don't know what the, how you want to articulate this, but maybe misinterpreted or, you know, like people will get them and then they freak out and, you know, potentially they don't mean what they mean. So I just thought we'd go over some of the main ones. Um, and let's start with, let's start with cholesterol because I feel like that is a real... That's a, that's a big one. Like a lot of women get their, you know, the, the cholesterol back and the doctors will be like, oh, it's like 5.5. It's so high. You know, you yeah, need to go on yeah. statins or, so can you talk about like cholesterol, you know, what it does, like are those ranges necessarily like correct? I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, like I think, yeah, they, they, like some, they, some of them are say like, oh, we want people to be at four, like such low cholesterol, which is not necessarily good either. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cholesterol is obviously the base for steroidal hormones. So if you if you don't have an optimal amount of cholesterol and cholesterol conversion, uh, then it's just the steroidal hormone pathway. You don't get adequate production of pregnenolone, progesterone, testosterone, and estrogen. Uh, and so the, the idea, and then another key component of cholesterol is it's an anti-inflammatory. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an antioxidant that's often elevated when your body's inflamed. So seeing cholesterol elevate is, 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 a, is a warning to sign to say, Actually, maybe something's not where it should be. The other key component and a well-known uh, symptom, uh, an expression of low thyroid function, is high cholesterol. So these days, the the levels have been gradually brought down and down and down uh, to fit this reference range, which is ideal really for creating more uh, clients, patients, customers for, for statin medication. Now, the idea that the lower, the better 
is not borne out in primary care. I think there's some justification, or cardi- cardi- cardiologists will say there's some justification for people who are in Im- imminent um, susceptibility of having a heart attack may benefit. But for primary care and trying to avoid heart disease, trying to keep cholesterol as low as possible is quite problematic because if we don't have enough progesterone and particularly testosterone available, we know that has an impact on the heart. Now, at the moment, you're absolutely right. As soon as it gets to about 5.5, there's this big red there next to it. It goes high. And anybody with people starts to see warning signs and red flags and go, oh, my God, I'm out of range. And this is kind of, I think this is part of the, the strategy to get people to say, okay, what can we do? I think any good doctor these days realizes that lifestyle interventions trump many, many, many medical interventions. So getting your cholesterol, I think that the, the appropriate range, and this isn't my opinion, this, is, this isn't just my opinion, this is born out of a very large study which came out of Korea, I think, in ni- 2019, looking at 12 million people, uh, South Korea. And um, it said that the people with lower cholesterols tended to have more incidence of uh, uh, death, basically. So they, they said that perhaps for total cholesterol, the, the, the good range would be around about 210 to 250, which is about two, uh, sorry, which is about 5.5 to 6.4 uh, millimoles per deciliter. So actually going as low as possible is actually going to impede your ability to protect your body from having this antioxidant-like effect. It's all going to decrease the steroidal hormones. And it also interferes with, you know, uh, there's, there's a particular pathway called HMG co-reductase, which is where statins interfere with, which will also have an effect on magnesium levels. So he gets this kind of dual effect of kind of inhibiting protection around the heart. So the lower, the better. I don't think it isn't borne out from any solid, robust um, biology. And what you've got to look at is some of the end range stuff. And there's also some suggestion these days that statins also have an effect on mitochondria and probably may interfere with their ability to produce energy. So I think when you're looking at the cholesterol test, as an example, don't be kind of uh, scared by that red H. It doesn't really mean anything. Um, and as I said, getting it about 5.5 is probably a really good starting point. Mm-hmm. There's a really interesting approach here as well, is that people with familial hypercholesterolemia, where they have quite high cholesterol levels, you know, around about 8, 9, sometimes even higher, um, there was, I, I read a really interesting paper that those people with high cholesterol levels that hadn't been interfered with so over-prescribed uh, uh, any drugs or kind of treatment for that generally lived as long as their kind of family members that didn't have that and other people. But they found that when they started interfering by trying to prescribe drugs and, and, and to lower their cholesterol, that's when familial hypercholesterolemia patients started dying a lot, a lot younger age. So I, I'm sure there are some cases where it goes really, really high that might need something. But it, it, for, as a general perspective, keeping your cholesterol in that 5.5 to 6.5 is, is really good. And even if you're going over slightly, unless there's kind of any kind of key pathology, I don't think it's something really to be concerned about. Now, obviously, I'm not a doctor. I can't go against the diagnosis that a doctor gives you. But I would encourage anyone just to look at what cholesterol is, does, what are the ranges that would be protective for it, and don't necessarily think that you have to keep lowering and lowering and lowering. Um, but I think, you know, that total cholesterol of around about 5.5 to 6.5 is useful. The LDL around about 150. Some people suggest that the HDL is the, the good cholesterol. Mm. There's no such thing as good and bad cholesterol. They both have different roles to play. Uh, but certainly there are smaller particles of lipids that can cause problems uh, in the VLDLs and some of the kind of fluffier stuff that's associated with it. 
So I think also looking at uh, cholesterol as being protective and, and having this antioxidant effect, and also being a, a key indicator of thyroid function, most people with uh, low thyroid, their cholesterol will elevate. Now, there are loads of key symptoms, as we know, we've talked about many times, what are the key symptoms uh, and kind of di uh, things that will add to a diagnosis of low thyroid function. Uh, and I think cholesterol, it might not always be as elevated as, as one might think in low thyroid. Everything doesn't tick the boxes. You don't have lateral third of the eyebrow loss, constipation, low energy, brain fog, uh, infertility, uh, high cholesterol. Not all of these things just tick the box all straight at once. There are different components of physiology that will say, okay, this, this bit's not functioning as well as it could be right now. This bit's not functioning as well as it could be. And, and over time, they may all get to that point. But they very rarely tick all those boxes all at once. And that's where you can look at other aspects of blood testing. I'm really, really interested in looking at symptoms because at the end of the day, people will go to a doctor or a, a, a nutritionist or a functional med practitioner or whatever it is, a coach, uh, and they will have specific loss of function. And I think that's what you have to address is what is it that is in someone's life right now that they don't have that's making them miserable. And you have to work on relieving symptoms and getting their function back so those symptoms don't keep being expressed. It's all very well going to a test uh, uh, for a, a, a checkup. And this is where kind of people like the, even Illich, who I'm a big fan of, would always say that going to a checkup is a great way of turning a person into a patient, literally one foul swoop, right? Because you get someone who's out of these arbitrary markers that say, right, you have a disease now. I'm just going, but I, I feel fine. But no, but your, your blood tests say that you're way out. Uh, and sure, there could be somebody who's actually really, really sick and in a very small, minute possibility that somebody could be really sick. But as a rule of thumb, this is where overdiagnosis and overtreatment tends to create more problems. So this is why I think not looking at blood tests as this kind of holy grail. Look at some of the symptoms that are being expressed. So we know that we've talked about thyroid and probably lead into that in a second about why stress, high adrenaline, high cortisol can suppress thyroid function. And then everyone goes, well, the doctor will go, well, your blood tests appear completely normal. And are those ranges actually accurate at, at detecting proper hypothyroidism in its subclinical forms? And do they affect everyone at, at any given time? Mm. Okay, cool. All right. So next one, a common one. Um, is TSH and why is it maybe not a great marker of thyroid function and then what tests would you get? So I think TSH, you know, I think the the, the use of that typically came back in the 70s uh, and it kind of started to be used to trump the doctor's uh, clinical thought process where they were using things like the metabolic rate test, facial metabolic rate test, mm. cholesterol, Achilles heel reflex test. Uh, to detect hypothyroidism. Now, the thing is with TSH, TSH is the pituitary hormone, the thyroid is stimulating hormone. It's generally sensitized from, from the pituitary and other mechanisms from feedback loops in the blood to help the thyroid gland to start secreting more thyroid hormone in, in T4 and T3, and usually in a four to one ratio. So T4 is considered the, the precursor to T3 that's more metabolically active. Now, TSH, for example, and there are kind of more emerging problems with TSH from, from a research perspective, is that that, they, that set point of TSH production, if a mother is, is, so, is exposed to a certain amount of pollutants, the TSH set point in utero, while, while she's pregnant, and we're talking across organisms here, be it kind of rats or hum, humans, the research is not so clear because we can't do that research. Uh, it's unethical. 
but in rodents, there's, there's some emerging research that suggests that there are disturbances that alter the feedback mechanism during pregnancy. Mm. So when you come to do a TSH test, then you might not see the thyroid test being disturbed. You might see kind of diabetic-like states. You might see high cholesterol and other disturbances. But the other component, particularly more relevant for humans, is that high stress, high adrenaline will suppress TSH production. High estrogen can have an effect of kind of disturbing the amount of thyroid that's being produced. But usually sometimes with low, low range of estrogen exposure, you might see TSH being increased. But imagine you're going to the doctors, uh, typical mum running around stressed, not eating enough, uh, and that she's got all these symptoms. She's constipated, perhaps her hair, hair's falling out. She's got some menstrual disturbances. And she might be very well over, overweight or underweight. It's difficult to say because that doesn't really represent a hypothyroid person. You could be normal weight, you could be overweight, you could be underweight. But you go and have this thyroid blood test completed and the TSH looks absolutely normal. Um, and so they go, well, your thyroid's not, you know, it looks fine. Oh, but your blood pressure's looking slightly high. Your, your cholesterol's looking high. Let's try and get you on a statin or an antihypertensive. And any good doctor should go lifestyle interventions to start with. Um, but that's the, 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 the component of thyroid that I think that's, that's muddied a lot of the waters and, and, you know, why so many people tend to fail from going for appointments because they, they could have a thyroid issue and the emerging stress and pollutants that are in the environment can also impact that and make that look as normal as it would be. So that's where I think it's useful to look at the other tests like T3 and T4. You could look at, you can glean some information from the total and the free versions of thyroid hormone. Uh, classic case, uh, two two cases recently, just in the last twenty four hours, uh, a client with her daughter online saying, and she, I think she has ADHD, and her TSH is two. Now, most people, the reference range for TSH is between zero point two and four point five, and doctors won't even consider your, that you're low thyroid until your TSH goes above four point five or five yeah. in some cases. Uh, now, she was at two, and, and I'm a firm believer that. Um, your TSH should be as low as possible because it's it's a it's a, a backup response to the pituitary produces more TSH to cope with failing levels of T4 and T3. So the TSH ramps up this production. So hers was over two, but her her free T3 and free T4 were actually in the lower 25 percentile of the reference range, which suggesting she's lower in, and she's got plenty of symptoms and there is, is some research on ADHD and, and thyroid function. So, you know, with, with that kind of in mind is that her TSH is on the higher side of things from, from my perspective and her thyroid hormones are on the lower end from from a reference range perspective. So how many years do you have to wait for that to catch up so you can actually diagnose someone with low thyroid function? And that's why, you know, really good doctors, one in Canada called Dr. David Derry, one in the UK, Dr. Barry Durham Peefield, were struck off for treating symptoms of thyroid disease because they ignored the thyroid blood test. That doesn't, that doesn't speak to me of, of people who are being unprofessional. That speaks to me of somebody who's critical and able to use their mind and able to look at someone and use familiar, that historically older thyroid tests that were poo-pooed by modern medicines to make a decision. And they improved so many people's lives, but ultimately they paid the price of being struck off the medical register but for treating people in that way. And so this is where you can look at, you know, many, many other tenets of blood tests to, to look at thyroid function. You can look at, you know, red blood cell markers like hematocrit and hemoglobin. Uh, and, you know, this is where some people would say, oh, would 
classically treat people with anemia, but if you have low thyroid function, perhaps these thyroid blood tests might be completely normal. But your kind of anemia-type blood tests of low hemoglobin, which is obviously the, the red blood cell protein, uh, and hematocrit, which is another part of the, the, the red blood cell, if they're on the lower side of things, if you have low, low thyroid function, it means your bone marrow is, is suppressed on how many blood, blood cells it's producing. So those red blood cell indices markers could be lower. But typically, then someone would look at maybe iron and ferritin and say, oh, the iron's low as well. But if the iron could be low, and iron on its own is a complete waste of time as a blood test to, to diagnose someone with anemia. But if these kind of other blood cell markers that are on the lower side of things, then you can use that as a suggestion that the thyroid is on the lower side of things as well. And that's why I still believe using something as crude as the, the basal temperature test using a thermometer and pulse rate is an absolutely great way of, of looking at it. It's not, it's not perfect. It's certainly not perfect. And sometimes you can get a better indication by using the mouth and comparing it to the armpit, using the pulse rate as, as well, as I said, with that. Um, and using the sub subjective things that you kind of experience from a day-to-day -day basis, which might be fatigue, um, it might be cold hands, cold feet, constipation, insomnia, or, or kind of even excess sleeping. Um, and you, you've got to kind of play it by ear, really. But I think looking at the TSH on its own is a complete waste of time. Mm. And that's why I think so many people are failed by the medical system because doctors would just look at TSH because they've been taught to think, in this algorithmic way and tick boxes which makes their life easier and quicker but it kind of a lot of people go through the net mm. no makes sense all right next one um estrogen and progesterone cool. so yeah yep. so uh, estrogen and progesterone and I, i'm not the first person to say this it was the, the great late ray pete who said that measuring uh estrogen in the blood is a is a really bad way of, of getting an idea of the levels Primarily because just the blood is not where everything is always stored as well, right? So you, in, in tissue, in adipose tissue, you can get stores of estrogen. Um, in the cells, there can be plenty of estrogen. You can perhaps look at some of the, the markers that you might get from urine tests and uh, you know something like a Dutch test, for example, where you can also see the oxidized metabolites of estrogen. Um, estrogen, when it can actually act in, into the redox cycle and cause an excess amount of, you know, damage, you know, people, people's mitochondria and their cells don't function well. They produce a lot of lipid peroxides, which is essentially fats being, you know, overused and damaging the cell because you use things like glutathione. Now, estrogen will kind of, you know, increase the amount of glutathione that's being used and, and reduce glutathione. So it can have a, have a real impact on your oxidative stress pathways. Mm. And this is where, you know, understanding how things like vitamin C and vitamin E and, uh, can be really, really useful. But the, the essentially the, the test itself doesn't actually always represent anything meaningful because there are so many other components to where estrogen is being stored. It's a bit like, you know, iron values to a degree is that when you're sick, you're kind of partition iron values off. Um, and sometimes the cells do this to prevent iron going into the cell and overloading it. So it's always as well, people will often go for blood tests when they're feeling sick or unwell. Um, and that's not always a good place to get blood tests done. Because in some cases, the, the actual expression of, of the tests that you need to see are totally masked by the other things. That's not the case all the time. But sometimes it's like, 
if I'm working with coaching clients, I get a lot of people saying, what blood test do I have done? I go, none. Let's let's get you on an even keel to start with. Let's get your nutrition sorted. Uh, if, you, if you're kind of doing that all right already, feel free to go and get some tests done. But often most people don't need to. And you and I both know for working with many people is that if you get someone on an even keel with nutrition, manage the stress, get their exercise right, get their sleep right and females getting their menstrual cycle kind of perfect or as close to perfect function as possible, getting guys with optimal T values. You know, the, these are the these are the things that will kind of normalize blood tests. And by the time you've actually got that done, mm. they're feeling well enough where they don't need to go and get any blood tests done. That, that's, that, that's not to say that that's everybody because, you know, as, as the best one in the world, you know, we still see plenty of people that eat really well but still have problems. And this is where the testing can can come into play, and usually a good time to get some of the tests done if they've been doing all the right things. Um, and uh, you know, sometimes you know, it, there's some environmental stuff that needs to be tweaked within their own environment that that can improve that. So, yeah, it's uh, I, I think blood tests have a place, but they're not the, they're not the kind of gold standard that that the mm. physicians kind of always rely on. Mm, mm. No, that that makes sense. Um... And uh, what about iron and ferritin? Yeah, so as we kind of touched on briefly there, you know, people, are, uh, particularly females, are often told they're anemic. Uh, and the, the, the values that are often looked at are iron, ferritin, uh, tissue iron binding capacity, transfer and saturation. These are all useful tests. Now, the, the, as I said, the, the, the iron test by its own doesn't mean anything at all. But low iron with low ferritin can give an indicator of heading towards anemia. But sometimes with low thyroid, you can still see this marker. This is why looking again, looking at the hemoglobin and hematocrit values. And also we have other red, red blood cell markers as well, uh, such as uh, mean corpuscular hemoglobin content or MCHC or MCV, um, mean corpuscular volume. And also another one called RDW, which is red cell distribution width. Some of these will have varying issues, but you can usually tease out with, with thyroid um, whether these are actually someone is actually anemic or not. But I think in a lot of cases, people can be anemic, um, but actually the, the pre presentation is being anemic, but also the thyroid is actually what's low here. So I think it's really important to kind of tease that out. Temperature and pulse again here. If the RGW is elevated, sometimes even above 13, uh, that can be an indicator of low thyroid function. It can be of of anemia as well, but I think you know, looking at could the cholesterol be involved here? Could uh, liver enzymes be altered? Um, could uh, could uh, other aspects of inflammation, oxidative stress, be elevated in, in certain blood tests? Could we see disturbances to kind of you know blood cell magnesium and, and other tests? So I think iron in itself and anemia, it's. I think that's relatively easy to resolve because, you know, people often put on iron tablets which cause constipation and other issues and, and insomnia. And I think, you know, getting someone to eat red meat with a glass of orange juice is probably the best way to resolve uh, anemia rather than going on, on a high dose of iron supplements. But uh, at the end of the day, I think most most anemic clients that I've seen have never been anemic. They've had low thyroid function. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And, and also, also the myth that heavy, heavy menstruation also is is a key of anemia. Sometimes, many many females do not um, have um, uh, that significant a blood loss. Mm. Mm. Okay, cool. And the last one, uh, calcium. Calcium. So you know, 
calcium is something that you, uh, can be dysregulated for for many reasons, but usually sometimes when you kind of have a high, relatively high phosphorus to to calcium diet, uh, sometimes you'll see. This is where sometimes testing parathyroid hormone would be useful. Um, if calcium's on the lower side uh, in your body, you'll tend to see hypercalcemia because what happens is parathyroid hormone will increase the amount of uh, uh, calcium that's leached or resorbed from bones and goes into the bloodstream and can be relatively un unregulated. So again, looking at kind of, you could look at phosphorus ratios, calcium ratios, you could look at kidney function, that can give you a good indication. And again, remember, just like any other organ function, kidney function is intimately related to thyroid function as well. So understanding uh, the dysregulations associated with thyroid uh, dysfunction as well. But yeah, if you're seeing kind of hypercalcemia, it's usually because, or these hypercalcemic states, it's usually because that sometimes calcium regulation is poor, calcium intake is poor. Uh, sometimes this is where getting consuming adequate dairy products is very, very useful. Uh, very well-cooked greens can be useful in calcium as well. And also getting adequate K2. Now, I, I like to eat a lot of cheese, so I, I, I touch my K2 values from cheese, but I also find that a K2 supplement can be quite useful as well sometimes. So, you know, I think resolving uh, the calcium tests and again, understanding why, why the calcium values can be elevated or, or decreased in the first place. Yeah. Awesome. Is there anything else like main ones that you want to touch on? Uh, no, I, I, I think they're the main ones. I mean, liver enzymes can be interesting as well mm. because, um, you know, when there's disturbances to, to energy production, you, you may see some of the liver enzymes, which is ASTALT, GGOT, they can be varied in many ways. Uh, and there are some nuances to looking at some of the, that, those particular tests. But I think if you're seeing uh, disturbances to liver enzymes as well, that's usually a burden to the liver. Um, that's usually um, sometimes related to thyroid. Sometimes it's related to kind of uh, pollutant metabolism as well. Um, I think the, the, another interesting one is usually HbA1c and triglycerides as well. Mm -hmm. So a lot of clinicians will look at that and say a, ability to utilize glucose um, now, I think the, the problem with just assuming that the glucose is the issue, the HbA1c is, is supposedly the pre-diabetic test. Um, and usually you'll look at something as well called HOMA-IR, which is basically the homeostatic control mechanism of insulin release. So those tests are done to look at someone's kind of capacity to utilize glucose um, and blood glucose as a fuel. Now, the, the test itself is not, it's not, a, a determinism of diabetes uh, and a lot of people will misuse it to say that oh it's because you can't um you know you can't you're, you're consuming too much sugar um it's usually a sign that you can't metabolize glucose efficiently but the actual test itself is fraught with inherent difficulties so it's not not always a good test and we know that with glucose for example having this this uh, this range Again, it's usually flagged if someone's over 100, it's usually said, oh, high glucose or, you know, getting over 110 high glucose. So, well, now you need to cut back on sugar as an example, just because you're consuming too much sugar. Mm -hmm. Yes, people can consume too much sugar, but also it's usually c combined with eating a lot of irritants, crappy preservatives, uh, high fat foods as well that can cause that. And obviously high in polyunsaturated fatty acids, which can also compromise the ability for glucose to be used as well. So um, sometimes you'll also see high triglycerides with that as well. And the triglycerides can be the, the effect of not being able to use glucose, so you'll see a higher glucose value. 
and the higher triglycerides will be kind of being dumped into the system to break down fats and reuse them as a fuel. So I, I think it's just useful to look at perhaps glucose and, and triglycerides as an example of you not being able to utilize carbohydrates efficiently. Does that mean you need to cut them out? No. Could you cut eat a little less? That might help, possibly in some cases. But actually restoring the ability to use them is probably going to be the key thing. But that might come from, so for example, the more carbs we eat, the more thiamine we generally need. Uh, now, as a rule with your kind of RDAs, a lot of people say that if you if you have like um, an extra thousand calories in your diet coming in, especially mainly from carbs, and this is where kind of perhaps athletes will, might increase as well, is that you need an extra milligram of thiamine. I think that kind of uh, value is kind of grossly misinterpreted because often some people do much better on 50, 100, and some studies show 600 to 1,000 um, milligrams of uh, thiamine a day. So thiamine and your you know B2, B1, B2, and B3 can be really good uh, ways of being able to use carbohydrates more efficiently, uh, as can being able to utilize enough thyroid hormone. So you'll often see um, a lot of issues around metabolic syndrome, which is classified as your high cholesterol, high triglycerides, poor glucose dysregulation. There's so much evidence to suggest that people can be hypothyroid or subclinically low thyroid. And bearing in mind, these people are going to be pretty disturbed from a metabolic perspective. Mm-hmm. So again, looking at those thyroid blood tests might not be a great way of, lo- of understanding that. But having this kind of metabolic syndrome profile might be a good indicator that somebody needs more thyroid to be looking at. But again, going back and looking at TSH might be a poor indicator here. This is where cholesterol values being elevated might be a, a good indicator that thyroid need is, is, is something that needs to happen. Mm. Mm, awesome. Um, well, thanks so much, uh, Keith. And as always, guys, don't forget to take a screenshot and share your biggest takeaways on Instagram stories and tag me at K-I-T-T-Y-B-L-O-M-F-I-L-D. And each week I pick a winner. Uh, sorry, each week, each month I pick a winner and they get a tub of Saturay Premium Collagen valued at $79. Now, I will pop all of the links to Tomo in the uh, notes uh, below. And yeah, thanks so much, Tomo. I'm sure we'll have you back on soon. It's been fucking great. Thanks for having me, Kitty.